we call them crappets over here. It's like, oh, yeah, we've got to go see a carpet. Yeah, great. We still get shocked when someone sees one for the first time and we're like, oh, okay. Um, oh, that's right. You wanted to see a carpet. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. So, PoorCityPythons.com, we actually have a sale on isopods going on. It is until tonight at 11.59, so if you're listening to this live, then you will be able to cash in on that deal. Otherwise, it may be beyond the expiration. That was a weird way to say that, huh? Yes, I thought that was weird. Yeah. Whatever. But anyway, yeah, I'm glad. Uh, thank you all who supported us during this, our little launch of the isopod stuff. And uh, yeah, it's been a success. So thank you guys. I got stuff to ship out tomorrow. And uh, yeah. Um, upcoming in the near future, February 8th, Boom. is going to be Southeast Carpet Fest in Melrose, Florida at Cody and Pia's. If you guys are heading down there, let us know. We will be there with a bunch of other uh, keepers. And just because it's called Carpet Fest doesn't mean you have to own a carpet to come. Just It's a great place to talk to other snake keepers and just learn a lot of new things and meet a lot of new people. Also, Absolutely. April 26th, I think, is the Syracuse. What's the full name of it? I'm not sure. Hmm, we're going to call it the Syracuse Reptile Expo. It's Let's the only call one in Syracuse. That. So. Yeah, so uh, we will be there. Uh, so come check us out there. Yes. Other than that. We are also sponsors of the show. Ooh, sponsors, sponsors, sponsors. Other than that, ready to introduce our guest? Yes, I our, think I think it's about time. Okay, our guest today is Scott Iper. He is an author, a keeper, and a consultant, and our first Australia guest. Yeah, correct? so I want to I want to kind of go through Australian snakes in captivity, um, frogs of Australia, dangerous, dangerous creatures, creatures of Australia, <laughs> uh, snakes of Australia. So he's really written a whole right. Lot about he's not Australia. just like a one time author. He's like dedicated, intense, great content. And his wife is right next to him, who is actually the co-author to their newest book, Scott and Ty Iper. How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you guys? Yeah, we're good. Thanks. <laughs> doing great. So, I mean, I can barely write the caption to an Instagram post. It takes me about an hour. So how the hell have you written so many books? Uh, well, you see cut, cut and paste a lot. Um, <laughs> no, no, you know. <laughs> no, no, in all seriousness, I suppose it's like anything. You just start off with a, a framework and work out what, I mean, the way we've done it is we start off with the headings and then come up with subheadings and then work out how we're going to lay out the paragraphs and then just sort of fill in the blanks, I suppose. It's, um, and then argue about the blanks. Yeah, then argue about the blanks and edit the blanks and, and <laughs> chase down images and, and all the rest of it. It's such uh Anyone that says it's an easy exercise. Um, We've had no social life for about three years straight now with the um, <laughs> Australian Geographic runs back to back. And I mean, as two people who work together. Oh, you stole my question. No, Dang it. it. No. See, great. <laughs> <laughs> I was about We're to ask, arguing, so what's the difference fine. between writing a book by yourself and writing it with your significant other? 
we're both pig-headed and stubborn and we both have our own ideas and we are both goddamn right. Yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, Ty's the boss and what Ty says goes. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, Scott was being awfully quiet. It's a publicly <laughs> story, I can tell you. <laughs> Did you each, like, take yeah, chapters? So, um, Did you kind of... Yeah, so... Um, so the bits are mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So, so yeah. So we picked out sort of chapters and stuff like that, and we authored chapters um, or, or groupings of, of stuff. So um, we're we're working on another publication at the moment, and the the publication that we're working on together at the moment ties writing. You know the, the, the monitors and the and the legal lizards. Well, we can say we can leave leave it up to people's imaginations, but um, you know we've done snakes and we've done frogs. Frogs. And, you know, there's there's a, there's a logical step here without saying it. There you so. go. You guys sort of got an exclusive there. <laughs> and and so, I mean, I know that you um, keep some amazing and beautiful lizards. So, I mean, do you, is that really one of your focuses? I mean, is that one of your loves in comparison to snakes or where do they rank for you? It depends. I mean, I suppose for us, it's more Monitors, a, a species of what we like. I mean, Ty's got things that, that she really likes. I've got things that I really like. Um, and, you know, I suppose that the interesting thing that we have with our collection is that I mean, for starters, Ty's the collection manager. So if it if we want to be able to keep it, I've got to try and sweet talk her into saying, yeah, we really need this or we really need that. We still end up with stuff I have no interest in keeping. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, we've, we've got a fairly large collection. We It's an educational collection. So we use we use the animals for training and also for, um, uh, for displays at places like schools and educational centres. Um, and we also use it for some things we use research-based as well. So um, we're trying to, to get some more reproductive information for, for some of the Australian alapids. So we're, we're looking to specifically breed certain species to get, to get raw data on that stuff. Um, as well as, you know, we're, it's always, as you know, it's always interesting to crack new species as well and, and, and try and breed things for the first time so are there still i mean big charismatic species uh of reptiles native to australia that haven't been bred yet um by us yes but then there's also stuff out there that um it's been bred but it, it, there's sort of questions about whether it's been bred yeah. without involvement of a wild specimen shall we say um whereas it realistically is probably being captive hatched or, mm -hmm. or or captive born um and the other thing is too it's all well and good to breed something once it's, it's another thing altogether to replicate it so um you know you you can you can ask it i suppose it's always good to actually actually have that formula and and, and know what you're actually doing as opposed to sort of guessing your way through it um the other thing is too the, the taxonomy of Australian snakes as well is um, is is fairly sort of in its infancy in a lot of ways. There's a lot of stuff still to be described. 
Um, I can think of about 10 different species of snake that's undescribed here in the country and, and probably about 20 or 30 species of lizards. So, um, what do you think is keeping that then, economy from progressing? We have a certain person here in Australia <laughs> that we don't want to validate his work. It's a dirty word. Let's steer off that subject. <laughs> Wait, so is that who you copy and paste for your books or no? Nah? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dow sales just went down. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, we, we, are, we, are coming, we are coming to the States. You insult me like that again and we might pay a visit. <laughs> um, Can that bit be edited? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, in all seriousness, um, oh, look, without, without sort of going into it too much, um, there, there is a lot of problematic things going on with, with stuff that, that certain people have named. Um, and it's all well and good for, we're not saying that, that, that you, you shouldn't have to, you should follow a set of guidelines. You know, I mean, when you're, you're writing a scientific paper, it should be peer reviewed. Um, once it's peer reviewed, then it, it goes through and there's, there's certain levels of, um, evidence-based work that needs to be followed out and, you know, you, you can't just slap names on things and expect people to use them. And I suppose that's what's happened. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, if, if you slap enough names on enough animals, eventually some things are going to stick. So. Very diplomatic, darling. Should <laughs> <laughs> we leave that one there? Yeah, yeah I think we'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, that, that has been a bit of a, a problem here in Australia with, with certainly with some things that, that people have chosen not to progress research on the basis that they were going to to validate the names of somebody else um, and do the work that they probably should have been done in the first place. So, and now out of those like um, 10 or 20 species, is it just that they need to be split from existing known species or is it completely unknown to science? Um, oh, look, there's... It's, it's essentially species that are being that will be end up getting split from from other ones, um, but at the same time, I mean, it, it's a, a lot of those are fairly obscure things as well. Not so much stuff that's in captivity, hmm. um, but I mean, the, the pygmy banded python is a is an interesting example of that. Um, there's there's been some work done on it to suggest it's a different species. Um, uh, that bloke went and slapped the name on it, um, and you know, then suddenly people aren't really interested in in doing the the genetics on it to to really work out whether or not it is a distinct taxon or whether it's a just a phenotypic variation of of Antaresa in a compact in a, a hybridisation zone between Maculosa and Stimson. So, um, and, and that's the problem, you know, in that particular instance, you've got Stimson's pythons that come up through the western part of the Cape York Peninsula. You've got spotted pythons that, that come up the side of eastern Queensland uh, onto Cape York. The two animals sort of abut quite close to that, that area where you get the pygmy bandits. And the question then, one of the main questions that a lot of people have got is... Is it just a, a a population of hybrids, I suppose, between Stimpsons and, and, and Mackies? Mm -hmm. And and this is the, 
the resulting crossover is this phenotypic animal that people are calling pygmy band of Simpsons? Um, or is it a entirely different species and maybe anteres are radiated from that particular spot, um, which has caused further speciation in the group? Um, but until somebody runs the genetics, there's going to be a whole heap of questions. And, you, you know, over here, we can't just go and collect snakes out of the wire. We've got to get scientific research permits and, and things like that to do that. So to get those permits, it's quite a lot of work. Uh, so then to invest a whole heap of time and work in effectively validating or 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 not validating someone else's work so to speak um you know it it takes a lot of the it takes a lot of the uh the push out of it i suppose and you could you know spend that same energy on something that that you don't have those same headaches with so um so yeah so it's 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 problematic here um it, we've also got problems with sort of dueling nomenclature as well where you've got a name that's been validly published under the ICZN code um, and then people aren't using that name because someone else has come along and done a better paper but it's come out after the fact and they're, they're using that name so you know the the, the, the name um, Maleo Python and Brockhammerus come to mind there you know where um, Brockhammerus was described 10 years before Maleo Python um, it's got the same type species being reticulatus. Uh, and so by the by the rules of the ICZN, you should use the name Brockhammerus. Um, but, you know, the, uh, there was a, a bloke by the name of Heinrich Kaiser at all in 2013, put a paper out basically saying we shouldn't be using those names and these are the reasons we shouldn't use those names. And, and a lot of those those reasons are quite valid, but they are contrary to the ICZN. And so um, there's been a, a a case brought before the ICZN that they failed to rule on as yet. So until such time they rule on that, there's there's always going to be sort of um, some some problems with which name is the correct name to use. At the end of the day, though, the reticulated pythons could give two shits. These. <laughs> You know, I don't read books. It only becomes a headache for us authors. <laughs> that's what's weird is that it's something that seemingly doesn't matter except for our own classification. But also it seems like something where like egos can get involved. Um, it doesn't seem like there's a definitive like percentage amount of deviation between species and stuff like that. And everything's kind of argued like it seems like just such an involved thing. So I suppose the one, the one thing it was I was talking to a, a mate of mine about it a few years ago, you know, the, the arbitrary percentile differences, and this is, you know, this is X, uh, so many percentile differences of, of, of genetic divergence should be a subspecies and, and so much should be a species. And why can't we just put a number and draw a line in the sand and say anything above this is this and everything below this is this? And the problem is, is it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is things evolve at different rates. And so um, evolutionary clocks change depending on species and, and how quickly something mutates and, and evolves is different. So something that lives in one on one hill doesn't move, uh, tends to get a fair bit of uh, genetic isolation. And so you do, the, the genetics in that location stay put. 
And so you get a higher rate of mutation, whereas something that moves a lot gets a lot of movement. And so there's a lot of genetic um, diversity in that population. And so, so things evolve at different rates. So because things evolve at different rates, it's very hard for us as people to come along and try and put our, our, our arbitrary boxes on the shelf and we're going to move the snakes into this box and this is going to go into this box and we're going to divide the boxes like this and we're going to have it all very nice and neat. Uh, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> so because it doesn't work like that, we're always going to have problems putting uh, square pegs in round holes, so to speak. And so uh, while the animals know what's up, um, the way we're trying to shuffle them doesn't quite work as well as we'd like it to. And so there's always going to be change and there's always going to be differences and to compound that as science gets better and we get better resolution and we understand genetics better um, and we understand concepts better then when we go back and revisit things that we looked at maybe 20 years ago um, because our resolution is so much better and we understand so much more we end up getting different um, conclusions from the same sort of data set so to speak so you know, imagine imagine looking at a television 20 years ago versus the television now. The, the television you look at now is, you know, 1080p HD, blah 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 blah, <laughs> versus you know, versus what it looked like 20 years ago. You know what I mean? So um, there is there is differences there. So um, compound that with with the internet and people being able to publish papers very very rapidly. Um, it's uh, it, yeah, it, it becomes a very difficult, interesting beast, I suppose. And how much more interesting is it? I mean, you guys have one foot, it seems, in the private sector, like hobbyist keepers, one side, one foot in like the scientific community. I mean, how silly is it when, say, over here, it's all about having a pure jungle carpet python? <laughs> I mean, how arbitrary is that even in comparison to, you know, trying to describe them in a scientific context? Um, I mean, the, the problem that we've got, and I suppose we, you know, carpets are a, a great example for that. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of people recognise uh, six subspecies of carpets. Um, the genetics at the, as presented at the moment don't necessarily suggest that. There is some work being done at the moment by uh, Warren Booth, Nick Mutton, uh, Justin Drewlander and a, and a couple of others that are, that are looking at um, the, the carpet python genetics at a much more higher resolution than, than previously analysed. And, you know, they're probably going to come up with some slightly different um, uh, slightly different sort of versions of what, what we think is the, the actual fact now. Um, I, I read through, there's a couple of papers by uh, Leslie Rawlings and, and Steve Donellan, uh, which are geneticists out of South Australia, really well-respected guys, really know their stuff. And then there was another paper by uh, Clavaglia, and Donellan, and they looked at the forensic implications of carpet pythons and the genetics. And in both of those papers, they they basically give the recommendation is that there's there's no genetic differences between say Macdowell and Shaneye, uh, which is usually pronounced Tenye, which is incorrect. It's actually Shaneye uh, for the jungle carpets, um, Verigata, Harrisonai. Um, so Harrisonai. Verigata, Shanai, 
and uh, Macdowlite and Spilota, so diamond pythons, jungles, uh, Papuan carpets, top end carpets, and coastal carpets are all genetically the same animal. And so we've regarded them as races in our book. Um, inland carpets are sufficiently different to, at subspecies level, whereas the western carpet python, Marilia imbricata, and Bredeli, or sorry, Bredeli, I should say, uh, the Centralian carpets are, are different at, subs, at all species levels. So that's probably the best way to reflect it. Now, somebody will come along, no doubt, and either use next generation sequencing and, um, and nuclear DNA, and they may get a different different outlier and, and say that and different resolution say oh this one's different to this and this one's different to that and if that's the case great you know we're, we're all for it but at the moment the evidence the genetic evidence at the moment suggests that they're all the one basically basically all the carpets are the one species and do you generally fall into the idea of being a lumper or a splitter do you care um uh i am Oh no, Australian Australian internet strikes oh, again. Oh no. You're never gonna know. But seems seems like he'd be a lumper from that last from answer. His, right, right, right. He Oh. <laughs> See, I Ryan in the chat just said, did he just say I can cross my Delaton and my Brisbane? And I feel like when you tell too many people that things are the same, <laughs> they start getting bulls. <laughs> yeah, but I mean <laughs> But it's also it's kind of built on a on a bad foundation, meaning that it's built on animals that are from zoos, quotation marks mm -hmm. that have been imported from certain areas in Eastern Europe. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's no solid evidence, right? Right. We're well, taking someone's word. But from the evidence is doing somewhere. the GNA, GNA, the DNA testing. That's what yeah. gives you the evidence. Right. Right. Right, which so far, like he said, to our knowledge, it seems like it would all be the same, which is something that we've kind of accepted as North American colubrid people. I feel like we accepted the fact that a corn snake's a corn snake, even if it's the rosy reds that are mm -hmm. down in the keys, which used to be, you know, considered different. considered different, and all the way up to New Jersey when we have the we have uh, corn snakes up there, or corn snakes in the sand hills of North Carolina. Right. They all look different, but are genetically the same. Even uh, the rosy red snakes, honestly, have a different body structure to them. So, if anything's going to be you know, a full species is going to be that one. It's going to be developed. It's just, just very, it's also, I think, you know, we always talk about like, oh, how many people are interested in snakes? How many people are doing this research? For that uh, study that Scott just brought up, I would love to know like the sample size of it. I mean, think about how many carpets are we truly studying? And if we Well, increase... they're in Australia, so I feel like. True, they have a lot. But I guess, you know, he talked about comparing like Nick's line and Nick's DNA, like. Which is interesting that we have, we have people that are from the private hobby, but obviously uh, Warren Booth is obviously has a PhD right. as, as uh, also Justin Julander. So it's like, they're both involved in the scientific community and in the hobby, which I think is really awesome. And they're seem to be bringing it into their own hands. Can you say? Oh, his phone overheated. Oh no! It's it was on the dash in Australian summer. That probably yes, yes. Oh no! Well, we got like twenty minutes. 
<laughs> oh jeez. I'm sure Can he, and it's like yeah he doesn't want to you know blow all his gas running the ac to cool down the phone we had a feeling this wouldn't work great yeah it's hard when you're on the road not yeah. to mention on the road in a foreign country definitely foreign trying to, to connect us, all that yeah but it's just uh it's not like he's he, in like east africa or anything but if he does come back i would love to know like how is dichotomy the right word Go with I don't it. know the dichotomy of Australia in the sense like you brought up earlier, like the hobbyist private keeper side versus the like science side. Because we That's talk what a I lot. Think is interesting we talk a lot to guests we have from America about like, yeah. oh, okay, you know, and I'm it's I want to know like how respected is the research that the private keepers are doing is with these animals that are all over Australia, you know, like since carpets are all all over our the private key I don't know. I would love to know how they're well, their oh, bar's a back. bit higher than ours. We can just pick up a corn snake at a reptile show. Theirs is a little <laughs> bit different. True. Welcome back. Oh, sorry, guys. It's a fine overheated. No, oh, no we're sorry. Good. Everything's <laughs> trying to work against us tonight. Yeah. Is that working now? Can you hear us all right? Yeah, you sound yes. great. So we literally oh, left cool. on a question. Are you a lumper or a splitter? <laughs> oh, I thought we did that conveniently. Um, <laughs> okay, so. Yeah. Oh, phone's going again, guys. Sorry. You just go um, okay, no. no, no, There's no way. No, it, it, no, you know what? It really depends. On on some things, yeah, lump, lump them. Um, other things... We we haven't even scratched the surface on on how many distinct taxa there are, um, and so it, it really depends. I suppose it's a case by case basis. But I think that some things are overly split, and I think some things are under uh, haven't been split enough. Um, and I think you'll get. I think some people will get better resolution in certain things when they when they get split out. Um, a classic example of that is the the cunning instincts here in Australia. Um, they're a beautiful lizard, uh, very very distinct, and there's there's lots of different species that are, are currently lumped under Agernia cunningamite. So, so yeah, it, it, it depends. And then you look at carpet pythons, and how we we, we really struggle to, to to pick the differences between the subspecies and the. The interesting thing that I find is that I, I listen to people overseas and they go, oh, that's definitely a diamond or that's definitely this or it's definitely that. And I'm like, how many wild individuals have you actually seen in these things? Um, when you get out in the bush and you start looking at the, the variation in some of these animals, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And so, you know, you guys are tending to be to li be limited to fairly limited gene pools and because you're limited to fairly limited gene pools themselves, you're not getting a lot of phenotypic variation. So you get this this look that happens to be a jungle carpet or this look that happens to be a, a coastal carpet. When in actuality, when you go out and actually find jungle carpets and coastal carpets, the variation in them is, is amazing. Right. We're just looking at it from, you know, like, a speck in this whole pool of all of it. You know, we're looking at these that came from these couple of animals. And there's probably there's... literally our bloodlines <laughs> come from like a couple of animals. So right, they all right. look the same. Like <laughs> of course, they're going to look very similar. 
I suppose to relate it to you to you guys, I suppose, is think of it like the Okatee's corns, you know? Mm-hmm. You can imagine if every corn snake that was in captivity that's over over in the States is an Oki, an Okatee corn or descended from Okatee corns. They're, they're all going to look sort of similar, but they're going to be, you know, you're going to get variation when they've been bred so many times. Um, but you guys, as you know, there's, you know, they've got corn snakes from the northern part of their range versus the southern part of their range. Go different counties, west, south, you know, different soil types, different rock types, different vegetation, all influences the, the phenotypic variation of the species. And so, um, you know, a, a bright red corn snake is not going to do great on, on dark black soil. Um, and so the, the, the bright red corn snakes on the black soil are going to get picked off by the birds of prey. And it's exactly the same here. So... You know, you get animals that live in the rainforest here that are from two and a half thousand kilometres south of where you get jungle carpets, and they look identical to a jungle carpet python. It just happens to be a carpet python that's evolved to live in in dense, closed rainforest. And so they have evolved to have this um, strong, distinct colour pattern. They're fairly small, and and they're high contrast in colour. There's no differences in the scalation. There's next to no differences in the genetics. So, you know, they're probably just the same thing. Yeah, and that's something that obviously we have fights over. North American colubrids seem to have a lot of similarities with with your carpet pythons. I mean, we have eastern rat snakes that are black, that are yellow, that are red, and like very bold colorations that are seemingly very different, same species. And uh, no one wants to accept that either. Well, because a lot of people want to lean on the phenotype. You know, that's what we see first. And so we want to rely heavily on breeders. That's kind of all we care about a lot of times, (laughs) which I think is a little bit unfair. Yeah, I I suppose, I suppose that's, that's just it, isn't it? You know, it's hard for, it's hard for people to embrace change as well. Um, You know, I, I still hear people talk about, uh, canebrake rattlesnakes as being distinct from timbers, you know. And at the end of the day, they, they um, Acroportis got got slumped back within Oridus. I don't know how long ago, about twenty years ago, I think. Now, so yeah, and people still use that. Oh yeah, that's a canebrake, not a timber. You know, well, you know, genetically they're they're the same animal. You know, yeah, don't say timber animal. rattlesnake in the southeast of the United States because I mean they're pretty serious about the canebrake. <laughs> Mentally noted. Yeah, we'll we'll keep that we'll keep that in mind. We'll we'll try not to offend, but we're pretty good at it. So, yeah, okay. Well, I'm I'm pretty good at offending people. So, you know, I like to see you have you have things like that, and where like they call rat snakes chicken snakes or coop snakes, or like they have there's a lot of um, colloquial cultural usages of common names, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look, you know, common names are a, a whole other headache again. You know, we, the amount of things that are called yellow-bellied black snakes over here, it could be a, a green tree snake, a tiger snake, a copperhead, a brown snake, uh, potentially a species of black snake as well. And everyone thinks the worst straight away. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, it's different. I mean, is it best to assume? Because, I mean, I wouldn't be one to be able to identify snakes in Australia. I mean, is it best to assume most things? <laughs> Not the touch unless it's a carpet python. That would be my <laughs> rule, I feel like. Oh, uh, you just just stay away from the pointy end. That, that's all. <laughs> it's, 
it's it's okay. I mean, look, we. I mean, look, I've been catching venomous snakes for thirty-five years. I've been catching venomous snakes. Um, so and it, it was all asked when I was younger. It was no, there was no skill involved. It's all complete fluke. Um, and it, it's, a, I suppose, a testament as to how much snakes don't really want to bite people. Um, and so I was being very lucky as a as a young fella, and then. As I got older and got bolder, I, I ended up making a few mistakes and ended up going to hospital for making my mistakes. Um, that's okay. I'm still here. And, you know, now the fact that I'm allergic to snake venom has, has sort of pushed me in the, in the role that I am being especially careful when I'm, I'm dealing with, with venomous snakes, regardless of how toxic they might be. So stuff that is generally regarded as harmless to people, I'll still handle it in the same manner as the way I handle a taipan or a ground snake. So if you don't mind going back and me asking, where did those accidents happen uh, with you relocating snakes or with you um, keeping them? I am so sorry that that was just, yeah, we didn't get that at all. No, you're okay. So, uh, to go back as far as did that happen when you were privately keeping or when you were relocating snakes as far as a, what's kind of the higher risk? Oh, it's about the same. The, the problem I, is with, sorry, go, go for it. I think you get a bit more complacent at home, to be perfectly honest. Uh, so for cleaning, you just get in and you do. Um, I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, so I'll grab everything with a hook because even a python will make me rash up and itch for hours. Um, but say you move a snake because it needs a bigger enclosure or something like that, you just get in and you do and you don't think, and then all of a sudden, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the cage you opened that had a, a, a carpet python in it a week ago has now got a taipan sitting in it or something like that, and you're like, oh, well, hang on, I should have really read that cage label before I opened that box. Music goes oh. on and you're just like, yep, poo more, poo more, poo more, poo, and you just get stuck into it. You don't think. And so are you even, uh, are you sensitive to even like cleaning out the enclosures and stuff like that of your venomous animals? Yeah, I wear gloves now. So I wear gloves and I'm pretty sort of careful with that. We've gone away from loose substrates as well. So we've got stuff on paper. Loose substrates produce dust, dust produces uh, aerosolizes venom, uh, and so it gets it up in the air when you're sweeping up the uh, sweeping up the urates and all the rest of it. And so, as a result, we've gone onto a paper system, and we don't have the the urates or anything like that. You walk into the snake room, and it, it's a um, snake building, and it doesn't smell doesn't really smell like snake anymore, which is it nice. doesn't attract bugs either, which is good. <laughs> Yeah, that's always nice. So, I, I mean, I've heard of this happening to so many different uh, venomous mm -hmm. keepers or even people with mealworms and different things like okay. that. So how does that exposure, do you know exactly how that works? Um, well, look, the way I found out about it for me is I actually got bitten by something that went into anaphylactic shock. Mm. So we're out bush. He has to be nice to me or I'll hide that EpiPen. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> so, is this something uh, to where yeah, so. be able to get antivenom in time? I mean, you would just go into shock, or uh yeah. So, if I get a bite now, I put on 
I put on one of these things, which is a, a, a broad compression bandage. Um, and then once I've got the bandage on, I call the, call the ambulance and sit there quietly and, and be calm and, and all the rest of it. I've got an EpiPen, so if I start to feel like I'm having an allergic reaction to to one of the proteins within snake venom, uh, then I can administer an EpiPen and, and go from there. I also got um, a Fenergan, which is a fairly strong antihistamine. And so the first thing I'll take after I've uh, placed a bandage on is I'll, I'll take a couple of Fenergan tablets, which will sort of help counteract any histamine reaction, which is an allergic reaction first. And then if I still start to go downhill, then I'll administer um, the EpiPen and, and move on from there. But here's where we should say that we really don't get bitten that much at all. It hasn't happened in ages, and I shouldn't say that out loud because I know what's going to happen tonight, but, yeah, it's not a, a regular occurrence. <laughs> so what are – and, I mean, I've seen your facility. It looks like a hermetically sealed, like, lab, like underground bunker full of <laughs> – Full of snakes, so I'm guessing <laughs> you have some protocols and stuff like that. So, uh, what are some of your protocols in your facility? I'm going to guess what you said then, because it just went like it, like you were sitting underwater. Um, but our facility is set up in such a way that um, the enclosures are built around the outside of the wall, so nothing can get behind the uh, get behind. Um, so if a snake gets out and goes onto the floor, it goes into the centre of the room as opposed to behind banks of enclosures or anything silly like that. Um, it's a a two-door entry system. So the the door into the, the building itself is, is snake-proof. Um, that gets you into a foyer area, and from that you can either go to the, uh, to the quarantine room or you can go into the main room. And... Once you go into the main room and the quarantine room, both both doors have got windows into them so we can see who's on the other side of the door. We can make sure it's safe to enter. Um, if it's safe to enter, then we can go in, we do a quick walk around the room, make sure that there's there's nothing on the floor, um, making sure everything's where it should be, and then we, we go through and, and clean out the animals or feed the animals or do whatever we need to do. So. The sinks are also covered, so if something did get out overnight, nothing could get through there. Like, you know, we've got uh, heating sensors in the in the building, so if the, the building gets above a certain temperature, we can turn the, the heating off remotely. Um, we the, don't have an inheritance. The, um. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the air conditioning system in there keeps the, keeps the room temperate, the room below uh we talk in Celsius over here too, so it's I'm not going to do the conversion because I don't know what the Fahrenheit conversion is. But the room sits between 29 and 27 degrees Celsius, um, with a nighttime drop down to about 20 degrees Celsius, uh, and then the enclosures themselves have a heat a hot spot that gets up to about uh, 35 or so degrees Celsius. So uh, the animals can shuttle on and off the heat. We we have very large enclosures for our animals, um, so the animals can sort of stretch out and move around and, and stuff like that. Um, and we've found that it, it makes a big difference. We've we've got double glazed windows in the ceiling uh, that allow moon phases to influence the behaviour of the animals as well. So um, if you go into our our building on a full moon, um, most of the nocturnal stuff is all huddled away as it usually would be. Whereas you're going on the new moon, which we don't actually have a moon out at all, um, all the nocturnal stuff's out and moving around. Um, 
the the roughy coloration, the, the roughies change colour between uh, between night and day. That's really prominent. Uh, we also have because the, there is those glass windows in the roof. We have a, a a crepuscular period there at dawn and dusk, and it does it does make a big difference to, to the animals. So. And you'll see them all like sunning themselves in that particular spot and they will follow the sun as it goes across the room as much as it allows obviously in their enclosures so it seems so like you guys are seeking super... the color temperature yeah and it seems like you guys are super in tune with trying to use nature in order to kind of influence your captive keeping so it's, do, do you guys and so, yeah, I know that you guys are keeping outside as well. And I heard you mention, uh, I think it was in a podcast before about like things like UV and stuff like that. Have you started to, or thought about introducing UV to your animals that are inside? Yeah, we've got UV on some of the, on some of the animals inside already. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think UV light is, is in particular, it's used with snakes is considerably underrated at the moment. Um, only because snakes don't tend to be as susceptible to something like metabolic bone disease as, as a lizard or a crocodile. Um, and so, and that's largely due to the, the whole diet that the snakes are generally fed on. Um, but there is some papers out there that, that talk about bone density in, in animals that have been given UV as opposed to animals that haven't got UV. So, um, you know, we like to think that you know the animals that we're keeping, we're, we're custodians of those animals, and it's our um, it's our requirement, I suppose, is to to keep them to the best of our ability and 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 keep them in such a way that um, is not only the the best for the animal, but we also want to make sure that we're continually looking to improve. Uh, and so, something that that may have worked for us ten years ago, um, we're happy to keep doing that. But if there's a better way. Um, then we're always open to uh, open to improving on our systems. So, um, you know, when we when we built the building itself, it's a building that is designed for, for reptile keeping. And you know, I, I spoke to a number of purpose and said, look, what what do you like about your room? What do you not like about your room? We'd we'd also been both of us have been keeping keeping over twenty years before we built that room as well. And so we built the room in such a way that um, we weren't going to make the same mistakes that we made over that 20-year period. I mean, I'm sure you guys, if you could redo the room that you've got the snakes in now, I'm sure there's things that you would change, whether it be widening the aisles a little bit or... Uh, or buying a new so that the It's just moving. It's living somewhere else. It's <laughs> <laughs> really what it is. What was that? Sorry. You're you're living in like 2050, and we're in like 1904. With the way you got, you guys are living in the future. If anyone hasn't seen their facility, it is just outrageous, and everything's stainless steel, and it's beautiful. Um, nothing like ours, unfortunately. You might change your mind. <laughs> so last time I saw it, you guys were still using, uh, it looks like you guys were hybrid as far as you were using some tubs and some cages. Do you still utilize both of those? Yeah, we still, particularly for the juveniles and stuff like that, we've got um, tubs and stuff like that for them. Um, 
certainly some species like death adders and, and stuff like that do really well in tubs. Um, whereas taipans, we've found the taipans do heaps better in the enclosures. They do, but I also think taipans catch them out and I think they do better in the little sistema tubs Initially. because they're a bit harder to see out of and see in. They see the movement walking past, so they sort of get used to you. But then when we put them in the actual enclosures around the room, they can see us and they're a lot more comfortable. So I think they something like a taipan needs the initial settling in period, shall we say, to get adjusted to you. Yeah, um, yeah it seems like that's like a lot of people are, you know, it depends on the species at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and like I suppose that the one thing for us is that and, and uh, we both had the, the same thing is when we um, <laughs> when we moved uh, one of our, uh, our olive pythons, we put our olive pythons in the, their large enclosures for the first time, it was pretty crazy to see how quickly they stretched out and how often now they sit stretched out like wild olive pythons do in the wild. You know, you see olive pythons in the wild and they sit in an ample position where, you know, the body is actually quite stretched out. Whereas when we had them in smaller cages before, they, they were always sort of hunched up and stuck up and things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, we love reptiles and amphibians. And so from our point of view, if we love them, we want to make sure that we're giving them the best we can. And I suppose that's the same thing with the, the outdoor enclosures. So, um, you know, we've got lace monitors outside. We've got parentes outside. Everything um, is toad-proof, though, okay? yeah, toad-proof. toad-proof. We learn our um, lesson the hard way and, and know, very small mesh. You know, there's feral cats. Yeah, blue-tongue lizards are outside. We've got diamond pythons outside. We have... Um, lots of different stinks, sangoannas, burton water monitors, all that stuff's kept outside because it gets the best, the best lighting, the the best variation in temperature. Um, We're not going to lie, there's a lot less cleaning too when it's outdoors. <laughs> um, but then too, I mean, the way that we design those enclosures is also designed for, for two people as well. So it's designed, so we've got food doors that we feed the monitors through. So mm. when we go into the enclosure the for, for cleaning or, or whatever, the, the goanna doesn't necessarily associate that with food. So, you know, even though I mean, our parenti, our largest parenti is a bit over six and a half feet, I suppose, and that animal can cover <laughs> One side to five metres, <laughs> six metres in like a blink of an eye. The very excited um, leap. <laughs> and, you know, they've got teeth on them that's about um, 10 millimetres long. And, you know, they literally will, they can shred a rat completely in half. Um, they're, they're, they're like velociraptors, I suppose. <laughs> um, and... You know, you walk into that enclosure and I walk in with a, a fairly decent-sized snake book that I can sort of Zorro the bloody goanna away from me if I really needed to. Um, but I don't tend to have that problem because the animal associates the food doors with food as opposed to the entry door for us. And it, it's little things like that that we've learned to try and influence the way we keep. Um, we've got underground hides for a lot of our animals and so we can access the animals in the underground hides those underground hides have got a lid on them that we can then open so we can actually get to the animal that's under the ground um but then that has its complications as well with flooding so we need to make sure that um 
we can get to those underground enclosures without flooding, having flooding issues. So uh, it's it, it's a lot of work to, to figure all this stuff out, and, and it helps that I've got a trade background as well. So, Is it YouTube? Uh, because I'm a, a trade. sorry. Is it just YouTube? Um, yeah, our youngest son, oh, it's really bad. Our youngest son is like 20. Um, he's still at home. Um, he's had reptiles since he was two, so he's grown up with them. He's totally fine. We wouldn't trust him with the elapids, but he knows what to do, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, it's just, well, it's us three. But He had a, um, I mean, this is how he's grown. He's literally grown up with reptiles. So years ago we had a, um, and we still got, we got a crocodile by the name of Freddie. <laughs> and you know we got called into the school and when we got called into the school they turned around and said you know we're going to talk to your son uh, talk about your son he keeps saying that he's uh, lying he's lying <laughs> and stuff like that and we're like well that's that's really unusual he doesn't he doesn't lie and he he's literally one of those kids that never lies you know? it's black and white and, it is what it is and so we said all right look we'll come into the school and we'll have a, have a conversation about it and they're like yeah he keeps saying telling us that he's got a pet crocodile called freddy and, and this that and the other and like yeah, he does and they're like the what was priceless <laughs> and then then it was very quickly it was like oh could you bring it in for show and tell um and so we wanted to bring it in for show and tell anyway. I mean, we've got a demo business, so that's fine. But um, we wanted to make sure that the kids weren't teasing him or anything like that about this mythical crocodile that's at his house. Um, it's, it's nothing quite like bringing a crocodile into a room full of kids, that's for sure. Especially when they think that the kid was just lying and not, you know. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> so, okay. apologies from the teacher that day. So that was the popularest kid in class all day. <laughs> uh, that story kind of leads me in. I have some like total, like basic level. I know nothing about Australia questions. <laughs> so what are you know most people's views of you guys being snake keepers and working with reptiles and all of that like just kind of enlighten us americans on it's people. changed a lot it really has i can remember 20 years ago and i you know you have a snake and that would be the line that you get rid of, rid of fellas with. Oh, I've got snakes. And they'd be like, oh, okay, we're cool. No, no. <laughs> now every second person has a reptile of some degree. It's it's changed a lot. It's nothing like the States. But, yeah, it's changed a hell of a lot. Um, yeah, and I suppose to, to, to add to that, you know, the, the other perception is, is that we we ride kangaroos to work and shit like that. We we only do that down to the local pub. We don't do that to work all the time. Um, you know, um, uh, in all seriousness, we, um, I suppose there's a lot, a lot of people keep venomous over here, um, but they also, there's a lot of people that don't keep venomous. They only keep pythons as well. So the, the big difference, I suppose, is the way that we, uh, maintain and handle venomous snakes in Australia as opposed to uh, the rest of the world. And it's got nothing to do with the toxicity of a snake. Um, if you're bitten by a red-bellied black snake, which is one of our, our uh, not, as not, not the most toxic, dangerously venomous species, um, you know, you can lose fingers, you can lose your hand, you can lose an arm. It's going to suck. It hurts like hell. Um I, and I'm speaking from experience there, it really hurts to be bitten by black snake. Um, but you're probably not going to die. But one of the things that you do is you handle them with, with hooks and, and tailing. So you 
your tail, the snake, and then you use a hook to support the body. So your hands on the animal. Um, and, you know, compare that to uh, a lot of the places overseas, they use things like pilstrom tongs and stuff like that. Tongs do not get used for handling snakes in Australia at all. No one uses tongs. Just what you say, because they're going to be offensive again. Is that, that's the nature. That's just the nature of these fast-moving elapids. It just works out that you kind of got to grab them by the tail. Well, you, you know, you, you 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 don't carry tongs um, because they're heavy and, and cumbersome and all the rest of it. Um, can you imagine trying to grab all of your all of your colubrids with tongs? Yeah, it's not, not going to work. <laughs> it's not really going to work, is it? Yeah. You know, and so it's all well and good for a sedentary rattlesnake or a viper or something like that that doesn't move. You can probably pick them up with a pair of tongs. Um, but then the, I'm worried about crush injuries and stuff like that. So I'd just much rather use a hook. For the most part, what we see here with tongs is a nervous handler it's and then doing it. more damage. Yeah which is why no one here basically uses tongs. We prefer to go for a hook. And what's the general consensus? And we use things like this. What's the general Sorry. consensus as far as like getting calls and stuff like that? Are people people usually good at identifying snakes and knowing what's... Uh, Terrible. What's Terrible. <laughs> We've had the biggest, deadliest snake in the world and it was a little baby blue tongue. <laughs> Yeah, I've been a leg difference there. I've I've been called out for blue tongues. I've been called out for rubber snakes. I've been called out for green tree uh, frogs. Green tree frogs, dog poo, slugs, <laughs> um, lots and lots of stuff. You're um, laughing, but when it's like three a.m. and it's not a snake, it's not funny. <laughs> so, so we one of the things that we do is we do pull snakes out of houses for people if they're in a if they're posing a threat to a person or not. Um, but we do free identifications as well. We'd much rather the snakes stay there, stay at the person's house. Um, if we can try and convince them on the phone to say, that, hey, it's, no, you're better off leaving that carpet pipe in there. He's he's getting rid of the, the rats that are in your property or that green tree snake. He's only going to cruise through, he'll eat a couple of frogs, and then he's going to keep moving. Um, yeah, save yourself $100 and don't get us to come out. Um, and and usually I'm pretty good at talking ourselves out of work for that. So, um, but every now and then, you know, you do get, you know, a brown snake in a person's toilet or something like that. And so you go out there and you you grab the brown snake and you put it into a bag and then you take it a few k's down the road and let it go. You know, and it it's fairly simple. Um, I I pick up a brown snake like you pick up a pen. Uh, you, you get you get pretty used to it. So, um, but you take you take safety precautions. You know that we don't do the whole video thing. And when we're catching catching venomous snakes, other people do, and that's fine if they want to do that. Um, Our but main then you find is that the person they're usually freaking out when it's a brown or something like that, and, and we're I, not there for you know publicity, so to speak. We'd rather just ease their fears and move on. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is too is that then you start to focus on the the fact that you've got a camera on on you or your live feeding something or whatever. Um, you know, we'd rather just just do the job that we need to do and not worry about a camera in our back. We're sort of between a lot of projects, so we don't have time. We prefer to get in there. Not that I do many call outs at all. I will admit I'm not a fan of brown snakes and that was my luck. Um, so, yeah, we, we don't record much at all or even take pictures of the releases. 
it's just in and out and then back to home really isn't it and riding and cleaning poo and yeah. <laughs> all the fun stuff yeah. that's that's the most glamorous part of keeping reptiles in that cleaning shit yeah, and that's why I don't do it. The most plentiful <laughs> part of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, other, <laughs> my other uh, Australia kind of question is, you talked, or Joe brought up earlier how you guys are in the captive side of it, but you're also going, you're out there and you're, you're relocating and all that kind of stuff. So what is the connection between like captive keepers and say like the scientist aspects of aspect of it, or people just herping like all those different kind of camps with reptiles how do they all interact in australia poorly <laughs> poorly is the best way to describe it um look it, it's there, there seems to always be a disconnect wherever you go between um between academics and and private keepers and zoological institutions and um, researchers, it, it, it isn't always. You get people that sort of fit in all camps, and then you got others that that think that their camp is the best, and so they sort of hold the flag up and say, "Hey, you should do it our way," or, or whatever. At the end of the day, though, we're we're all people that have a mutual love for, for reptiles. And sometimes it would be better leaving the egos at the door um, and the ego tends to get in the way for some people. And, and look, don't get me wrong, we all like our ego straight. Um, That's every camp has ego. That's what connects us all. We all have ego every camp. <laughs> every camp has got egos and every camp likes their ego stroked and everyone thinks that they're the best. Um, and so I suppose that what we try to do as much as possible is that we try to to listen to other people's points of view and then we choose whether or not we're going to take it on or not and that's a, a private choice for us as opposed to telling everyone to do it this way I, I suppose the other thing is too i mean i've you know we've both been keeping reptiles upwards of 30 years and uh, i suppose that the one thing that the one takeaway for us is that you know, when I when I'd kept reptiles for five years, I thought I knew a lot about reptiles. Um, you know, ten years down the line, I thought I knew heaps about keeping reptiles. And then, at about fifteen years worth of keeping, I started to realise I don't know as much as I think I do. Um, and now, the way I look at it, basically, is I know stuff all about reptiles. There's I know a tiny little bit about a bit, and there's always stuff for me to learn. And so. By going into it that with that approach and not assuming I know everything allows me to. Um, Only you took that on in the broad scheme yeah, of life, darling. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose what it allows me to do is to to sit back with an open mind and and sometimes people that have only been keeping three months um, because they don't have that rose coloured that rose tinted glasses on yet they they've got a completely different way of looking at something and. They can turn something completely on on, on its head for you and, and make you think a different way and a different approach to things and and that can that can be really beneficial. I think through doing this podcast and just learning about how many different species are out there and how little even the smartest people know 
about so many species. I think that's probably going to be our best way to connect all of the camps. Like you said, like realizing how little we all know, someone who might have been doing research for 30 years, there's still so many new species to learn about that this captive keeper might be researching on their own. And that is a great segue for us to talk about the blind snake. Um, <laughs> where I leave. Because <laughs> um, that yeah, so, snake, we know nothing about. Yeah, so uh, Electopidians or, or blind snakes are, are, are an ancient lineage of snakes. They, they go back older than, than pythons. Um, they're largely fossorial in, in nature, so they, they live a uh, lot below the surface. Uh, and they tend to feed on ants. Um, and as a result, because they tend to live in the same locations, uh, being being under the soil, eat a similar prey item, um, they tend to have evolved a similar morphology. So they all look basically the same. Um, very smooth scaled, usually small, and and the, the features are, are quite conservative, I suppose. And so because those features are conservative, we've, we've often thought collectively that, you know, there wasn't that many different species out there. Well, with the, the, the start of use of genetics, genetics have shown there is they're probably one of the most poorly um, sampled species of, of reptiles that are out there and that there's a whole heap of species that, that sit undescribed. So um, if you want to name a new snake, blind snakes are where it's at. The problem is is to, to look at blind snakes, and I looked at a, a absolute shitload of blind snakes for the, the snake counting scales on them. Um, you know, you've got a snake that is uh, 400 millimetres long, so that's what about... Uh, 30, 30 odd inches long, sorry, um, 20 odd inches long, um, and it might have 700 ventral scales. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was really lucky. I needed new glasses at the time, so I couldn't do it. My eyes were straining too bad. <laughs> right. and, and they've got a body diameter of, I've got a, I'm going over the inches for you. So uh, their body diameter is about an eighth of it, between an eighth and a quarter of an inch. Okay. <laughs> Oh. So, so like the size of like a grey lead pencil, but like three times longer of a grey lead pencil. And they've got these tiny little scales that you literally need to count with a microscope. And so you go along and you're counting the scales. And then as you're counting the scales and you'll get down to like 526, somebody will come in and go, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And you're like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Was I at 521 or 522? Oh, shit. <laughs> and you start again at zero and go again. Uh, that, that happens seemingly a hell of a lot. Um, and so it's quite painful. Uh, but that's all right. You know, um, blind snakes are very interesting in that they aren't well found. They aren't easily found. They're very hard to target. And so they're poorly known number-wise. And as a result... Um, when you start looking at it in, in museum collections and spirit collections, you, you start to realise that there's there's lots of things out there. Um, we spoke briefly before we came on air, we were talking about the, the variation in them. You know, there was a, a paper that, that looked at the genetics on blind snakes across the world. And in Australia, we've got 49 species of blind snake described. 
of that 49 species that are described, they think about a third, between a half and a third of the species actually described. So, you know, there's there's anywhere between 50 and 75 species of blind snake that uh, are remaining to be described in Australia alone. Um, add that to Indonesia, Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, South America, Africa, we're, we're talking some some massive numbers. Yeah, that's that's a good a big good size blind snake there. In some of those ones. That's a good size. Yeah. I'll put some photos up on Flickr and, and send some links through so you can get a bit of an idea of some of these things. Um, the other thing about blind snakes is that they stink. <laughs> um, so you know how you get must by a corn snake or something like that, and that's pretty bad. That's nothing. That's that's fine. You know, you, you can shower in corn snake musk compared to blind snake musk. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! You you can you can literally start to like dry reach. It's that bad. Wait, out of something like that tiny, though. it's so small. Oh yeah, and it's fucking funny watching somebody pick up a blind snake for the first time and it must. <laughs> and and they are probably the most painful animals to photograph. They are horrendous to photograph. They're so fast. They just don't stop moving. They're like little Tonka trucks. They just keep going and going and going. And it's like, do they, what's the mouth like? Because I saw pictures and I'm like, how does this thing eat? Yeah. Um, yeah. The mouth is like, they, they don't have, um, I don't think they've got teeth. I think they've got plates as I remember, as I remember it. But the, 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 the mouths on them are tiny. Um, the the eyes are, are under under a couple of la- up under a, a layer of scales. And basically, just, they can see light, light and dark. That's about it. They don't really make out shapes. But um, it seems like they don't protrude at all. They're like completely flat. What's that? It seems like the eyes don't protrude at all. It's just like completely flat. Oh no, it's below the. It's below the. Yeah, yeah. There's the, the eyes do not come. There's no grill or anything like that like a, a, a large spectacle or anything like that like it, it's yeah it's it's there's no resolution in their vision i don't think that's for sure it just seems like almost with as little as we study them it's like an alien among us so as close as you can get i guess in the same <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're, they're pretty cool animals in that sense like they're really really distinct um and and I suppose you know that there's there's interesting things that that remain unknown about them at this stage. So you know we've got a, a couple of papers in the works on on some interesting things with blind snakes. Um, and you know until those things are published, we can't really talk about it. But but they they are they're very very different. The um, idea of interesting maybe different to your spelling when it comes to blind snakes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, I think they're cool anyway. You know, <laughs> what can I say? Um, is there any yeah, idea? I'm like maintaining how, the captivity, though. So, is there any idea like how genetically different, say, an Australian blind snake is than, say, one of the United States? Oh, it's about as different as a dog to a horse. Wow, they're, 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 they're really radically different. They're, some of them are in complete different. Uh, they're in different families. Uh, they're in the same super family, super family, which is is Scalectophidia. But they, you know, they're not even in the same uh, family level. So uh, some of the American blind snakes 
uh, are in one family and then you've got uh, the Australian ones in a different one altogether. So it's like comparing a, a, a boa to a, uh, to a python or an island. And do, do those differences exist within Australia between blind snakes uh, species as well? Uh, well, at this stage, and the ones we've looked at, um, they're, they're currently set up in. Well, they're currently being looked at as in, in three three genera. I, I think that'll probably change. It'll probably end up being more, more like four or five eventually. Um, but at this stage, we've we've got them in in three different genera, um, and. And yeah, I mean, look, it's it's invariably going to change. We've got fat ones and skinny ones, and short ones and long ones, and some that live. You know, there's a an actual troglodyte, which is a, a cave dwelling animal that that they only found when they did a mining bore, and they went down seventy meters, and as they pulled the bore, the, the soil out of the bore, they actually found this blind snake halfway down the bore, and they pulled this thing out, and that's. This huge, long, tiny, thin thing. It's only about three millimeters round in diameter, and yet it's forty-nine centimeters long. Um, so it's this ridiculously elongated, tiny snake that has seven hundred and ninety ventral scales. Um, yeah, it was, he loves that. Yeah, I, I hated counting scales on that, um, but. Yeah, I mean that's that's a Nilios longissimus, and it's a, it's a fantastic critter, but it's an animal that we'd probably never see on the surface. And where they live is they live in these there's like these limestone caves, and they think that they've evolved to be so long and thin, so they can actually make their way through the the crooks and crannies in those in those limestone limestone caves to find the ants and stuff like that that they eat. So, you know, something that's incredibly derived like that is, to me, is something that's interesting that to most reptile people is like, yeah, was that a worm or when, when are you going to show me a snake that's interesting? We all find our things. <laughs> and I feel like you've seen so many for, you know, over 30 years, you may have gotten used to oh, another carpet python, huh? Or maybe python, like python. the big flashy, you know, does a big flashy kind of wear off as, or... You know, you go through like periods like, oh, this little worm is really cool. Because <laughs> you yeah, see you all the see big more things. in the small thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're we're both into our photography as well. So you know, for me, I, I really enjoy um, photographing species I haven't seen before. So you know, it's nothing for me to drive two thousand kilometers to go and photograph a skin. or a freaking blind worm, or a blind snake, <laughs> or a frog. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I went looking, well, this is going back a few years ago, but I went looking for a, a particular species of leaf-tailed gecko that happens to live only on, on two hills. And it's a 15-kilometre walk into where you see the, the lizards from where you park the car. And it took me six goes to, to find one. Wow. So, so what kind of research are you doing for a trip like that in order to make sure, you know, they you have your best shot? No, no, no. But basically, nobody had photographed them. They've only been photographed by three people. So, so you have um, nothing to go off. I spoke to two. Yeah, so I spoke to two of the three people that had found them before, and they're like, "Yeah, you just go there, and they're on this hillside, and, and knock yourself out." It's and you sort of go there, and they literally are a hill. They're on a hillside, and you so you park your car at the base of the hill, 
and there's an elevation change of about um, <laughs> 400 meters, I suppose, um, which isn't that much, I suppose, but it's a 15 kilometer walk in and a 15 kilometer walk out. Um, I so, got a heavy breathing phone call and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's a 30k round trip to to not see a fucking leaf. Okay. <laughs> and you um, said it took you, you try doing it tonight. Yeah, six times. Oh. Yeah, I walked 180 kilometers for a fucking leap to Algeco. I've got problems. Okay. I mean, you think we're like, thinner than what we actually are, but we're not. That's a, that's 100 and almost 112 miles for the American. to find one. Yeah, yeah, and you know the worst part is, I only photographed one with a regenerated tail, so I haven't even got one with an original tail. <laughs> and and the the OCD in me wants to actually go back and get one with an original tail. So, yeah, that's probably going to happen at some point in time. So when I get one with an original tail, I'll let you know what the what the kilometre count is. <laughs> well, it, it's a leaf tail after all. Is that the most important part? Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's all he went for is just the tail and couldn't get that part. Fucking things. <laughs> but, oh look you know it, it's they're awesome animals i mean it, it, going out and i mean i love field hopping and, and seeing stuff in the bush and you know i think in in fairness i probably enjoy that more than than looking at animals in captivity but um don't get me wrong i, I love keeping animals in captivity you know we've got things like butler snakes that that i love ty loves her her pilgrim death adders um yeah i mean we, we love animals in captivity but we also love getting out and and seeing animals in the bush. I suppose it's almost like hunting, but instead of using a gun, you're using a camera. So, yeah, but they get to sit the blind. They don't have to walk 112 miles to get that one deer that they want to kill. Yeah, if, you, if you do it in the West, in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, go to the grocery store. That's so wild. I mean, I got no idea what you just sorry. said. It all, it all just cut out. Sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. It was not a good joke anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to laugh anyway because, you know, <laughs> we That's can't it. leave you hanging. That's true dedication, though. I, yeah. I, As you were speaking, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, what would I walk 112 miles for? I don't think I would even do it for like a million dollars. <laughs> like, or is like... it dedication or stupidity? <laughs> it's like, no, it's like it's an obsession that you didn't. I'm sure you weren't. You didn't care how long it was going to take. If even if it took you 200 miles, that would be a great story to say. I dedicated myself and then obsessed enough with this gecko to go 200 miles. You know, to go. See yeah, it. that's what's on your tombstone. <laughs> I suppose too, it becomes there's a bit of stubbornness behind it as well. It's sort of like, no, I am going to catch you, you I am going to find you. I'm going to get my photo and I'm going to love it and I'm going to happy and I'm going to be enjoyable because if you don't get it and until you find it, and see, this is the other thing you've got to remember is that I'd walked five times before I actually found the bloody thing. So I'd walk what? That's 150 kilometers I'd walked without finding the fucking gecko. So. You know, you, you do it on that last trip and you get it. It's like, oh, well, you know, hey, it's not so bad. So, um, 
but you, you are pretty excited when you do actually see the see the animal that you're hoping to see that's for sure yeah and is it something that you typically share with other people that you go with other people or do you like to herp alone um he's a bit anal when we go out oh we usually go alone <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a bit yeah look it really depends um look I, I love going on trips with people and, and all the rest of it um these days when we're doing stuff we we tend to target it around a, a research item of some description so you know we, we're assisting on some research projects for various bits and pieces and um and so when we're doing a trip, we'll, we'll usually go on a trip where we're looking for something for a specific reason um, as opposed to just going out and just generally herping for, for the sake of it. Um, whereas, you know, I mean, we're going to be over in the States in, in a few months at, at, uh, after herping time. And, the you know, one of the things that I really want to see is, is rattlesnakes. So, you know, we're, we're going to spend a bit of time targeting different species of rattlesnake. Probably not 150 miles, but anyway. But I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I don't want to be walking 150 miles for a species of rattlesnake. So. Um, but yeah, you know, it, that's that's our that's our plans anyway. Yeah, well, it seems like you're going to the right place. So you'll definitely find yourself. I think I think we take advantage of how unique of an animal that is for us to have. Like, for us in America to have an animal like that, I mean, we should consider ourselves lucky lucky to get some nice voice cracks in there mm, sorry puberty <laughs> <laughs> i am so sorry we didn't get that <laughs> no i'm just saying like how how unique of an animal that is we should appreciate that you know as americans we kind yeah. of which you guys probably do with some of the species you have like your carpet python that's probably like our rat snake we're like uh whatever but to us if we saw a carpet python we'd freak out yeah, yeah. We, we've got carpet pythons in our backyard. So they're you're desensitized to them. <laughs> yeah, a very long time ago. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we call them crap, we call them crappets over here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it doesn't. Yeah, it, they really don't. It's like, oh yeah, we've got to go see a carpet. Yeah, great. We still get shocked when someone sees one for the first time, and we're like. Oh, okay. Um, oh, that's right. You wanted to see a carbon yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the excitement of that person's face. Have so, you been able to, to guide some people or guide some people from, uh, say, America or from overseas uh, over there in Australia? Yeah, I've, um, I took out uh, the, the guys from Aurelia Python Radio, like oh, a couple of guys out. Um, uh, Eric Eric Burke, I took him out. Got him a carpet python within like five minutes. But he's a carpet python, and then and then he, they were they were really excited over it. Um, we took out Tommy Crutchfield over here, and he was out. We've taken out a few other people as well, and shown them various bits and pieces, whether it be carpet pythons or leaf-tailed geckos or, or venomous snakes. Um, yeah, people from Argentina, people from Europe. You know, we're um, people from all over Australia as well, and you know we. We don't mind if we can if we can take somebody out and show them something that they haven't seen before, um, and we're available and it, and it's something that we can do. Then we're sort of happy to do that, um, and we hope that at some point in time those people can 
can return the favour to us and, you know, we get overseas and we get to go seeing something that, you know, that we don't, don't usually see. So uh, it's, it's um, yeah, you know, you say rat snake. I'd be excited to see a rat snake in the wild. I've never seen a rat snake. I don't think I've ever seen a rat snake in captivity, let alone in the wild. So, um, you know, we don't keep exotic reptiles over here, so everything we keep is is native. And so, you know, the stuff that's that's commonly kept over in, in pet shops and things like that in the States is actually a big deal to us. Yeah, we plan on doing a few pet shops just in case. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like we we have the appeal of saying like I want to see Owen Pelles, I want to see uh, Parentes, um, but you guys, I mean, the whole rest of the world is open to you as far as uh, like when you go to like Ham <laughs> or one of our reptile shows. I mean, that's a brand new world. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. Well, I'll put it to you this way: I've seen one ball python. One individual ball python in all my time keeping reptiles. Wait, what? One single one. One ball python. Was it an albino nose? Or was it a black and no, brown? No, it was just a regular. Yeah. Just a regular, normal looking, normal looking ball python, and the the couple of corn snakes I've seen have all been albinos. <laughs> Something that you guys would go, oh, over, we would yeah. be like, oh my god, look at that. <laughs> That's a fucking corn snake. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it wouldn't be like that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I mean, corn snakes are invasive over here now. How really? So, where are they in Australia? Um, is there a certain range that have they have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if, if you've got our books, we'll be able to tell you. Um, no, look, they, they've turned up. They've turned up in Sydney, um, and when I say turned up, we're talking like about two hundred individuals between Sydney, Brisbane, and Melbourne have turned up, wow. um, including juveniles and uh, all the rest of it. So it's pretty horrible um, to, to have something like that. We don't know how they're going to react to the ecosystems over here. Um, and they're largely a result of, of uh, illegal keeping and accidental release. Accidental. Well, accidental or deliberate release, I suppose. And I could imagine that a corn snake could live anywhere in Australia. Oh, sorry, what was that? I, I could imagine that a corn snake could live almost anywhere in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully in the belly of a mulga snake. <laughs> <laughs> so between, I mean, things like cane toads and things like obviously the wildfires and stuff, I mean, the environment, I mean, what has been going on? What's the extent of the damage done, whether it's from invasive species or wildfires and stuff like that? Um, oh, look, for us, the, the one of the largest problems of invasive species here is, uh, is cane toads. Um, but then on top of that, you know, you've got things like Asian house geckos, Hemidactylus frenatus, uh, box geckos, Hemidactylus carnotti, um, uh, flower pot snakes, in the um, and smooth newts, uh, bulgaris. They're all they're all in invasive pets you know, in Australia in various places. Um, cats, house cats, feral boxes. cats, foxes. Lots of different Don't birds. you have like water buffalo you know, or something then, ridiculous like that? 
Yeah, what water buffalo? We've got more camels here than they do in Arabia. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah. If you want to see how to fuck a nation, come to Australia. We have a look at our environmental record. It's terrible. Um, yeah, we've we've got some of the the most fragmented and and damaged habitat in Australia in in the world. Uh, yeah, so. It's it's pretty abysmal what our government has done in in 230, 230 years of, of occupancy, I suppose. Um, and you know the, the reality of it is is that the, the first settlers were from Europe. They came over here and they wanted to make Australia like Europe. Well, it doesn't fucking work. Um, and so they released foxes. They released rabbits. They released. Um, they they brought their cats with them. The cats got out. They bred up. Um, dogs, etc., and our animals, because they don't have any feline predators, they don't have any fox-like predators. They were never evolved to, to live and and deal with predators like that. And so we've gone through huge rates of extinction of our native species as a direct result of, of introduction of, of other species. Um, and if they don't really want to do too much in way of culling it, really, because you've got the, uh, the snowflakes that get up on their high horse, it's alive, or we're supposed to keep our cats indoors. We have a cat, don't get me wrong, never step foot outside. But you've got all these people, especially people that kick birds and reptiles and whatnot, that, oh, no, my cat makes a fuss, so I let it out. doesn't kill too much. One thing is too much. So you know, We've got... Now, now, we've got some very strong lobby groups over here as well in the in the agricultural sectors. And so, you know, we've got national parks that have got fucking horses living in it and they don't want to shoot the horses because there's horses living in a national park. Well, the, the vegetation and, and the ecosystem is never designed to, to deal with the hoofed animal of all. So the horses come in, they go to a water system and they trash they trash all the vegetation around that water system. So um, because their feet aren't, aren't designed to deal with what we've got over here. So yeah, we've got we've got massive issues with um, habitat destructions here. And you know, there's there's no easy easy solution to it, that's for sure. So it seems like oh, and <laughs> We're because we're going through as far as uh, obviously you guys have been closed off. I think I mean it must have been since the seventies or, but we have in Florida. I mean we have this issue, some issues that you guys On obviously have seen for mm -hmm. for a while, and we're seeing some legislation and stuff like that. I mean, has closing yeah. down the country? I mean, has that really stopped all this stuff? I mean, clearly it hasn't stopped much from happening, but was the damage done before that happened? before it was closed off? Yeah, well, see, the problem, yeah, look, the, the reality of it is is that the, the massive damage that's been done to Australia is largely either free legislation in regards to importation of species, um, in regards, and it's not so much that hurts the issue. The corn snakes are something new. Um, they've, they're invasive, and the reason they've got out is because of people keeping them illegally. I don't think there's any real doubt about that. Um, and so that's a direct problem that's a result of, of reptile keeping, I suppose. Um, the Asian house geckos, the fox geckos, the cane, uh, and the, the flower pot snakes, they were accidental introductions. Um, the cane toads were a deliberate introduction. They, they put them to try and combat 
a thing called a cane beetle, which is a, an agricultural pest for sugar cane. Uh, the problem is, is the beetles climb up to the top of the stalks of the sugar cane. Cane toads don't climb. Um, and so they weren't exactly an effective uh, biological control agent. The, the issue is, is that the cane toads have got this fantastic toxin and, that they produce that, um, that protects them from, uh, from being eaten by predators. Well, that's all well and good if you've evolved to live with, with cane toads. You get used to that poison and it doesn't kill you. It only makes you feel a little bit sick and you, and you spit it out. In the case of our animals over here, so, they've never evolved with a toad. And so that The red toxin, bellies at one point thinned out yeah. so much. So the, the, they've evolved. They've never evolved with a toad toxin. So something that should only just make them feel a bit sick was killing them outright very quickly. Mm. So we saw massive, uh, massive losses of, of various species of, of frog-eating animal, whether it be uh, quolls, which are a small type of mammal, um, goannas such as yellow spotted monitors or burnt water monitors, freshwater crocodiles, saltwater crocodiles, uh, and and about 30 species of snake, um, birds, etc. There's been so many animals die from bloody cane toads. Um, but, you know, this is what happens when you release things that shouldn't be released. In regards to um, whether or not we should allow the exportation of reptiles or not, we were talking about this yesterday, um, It'd be a quick way to deal with smuggling is to, to allow controlled export of Australian wildlife through through proper channels. If it went out through proper channels, people would be happier, I think, to pay a, pay a little bit of a premium for animals that were uh, exported through the proper channels and right and done, done the right way. The animals are, are, are maintained properly. The animals that would be exported would only come from captive collections. You know, there's, there's ways and means that we could do that and it would stop smuggling just like that. Um, smuggling out, yes. Yeah, smuggling, smuggling out, not smuggling in. Right. Um, okay, two questions. And I know we're at an hour and a half, but um, shoot, I already forgot my first one. Sneak them in there. Oh, okay. Um, first one is because you've been herping for so many years and you talked about, you know, what's happened to these toads, what is the biggest change you've noticed over the 20 or so years i think you said you've been herping because of the fragmentation or the evolution and everything like that you don't see anywhere near as many dead animals on the road as you used to do you nowhere near yeah the, you don't see that you don't see the amount of animals that you used to see um and the one thing that i've noticed we've just we've literally just driven Two and a half. It's It'll be about two thousand kilometres in summer, in humidity, um, and we've barely had to clean the windscreen yeah. on the way down and back. So there's bugger all bugs. Now, if we're not seeing bugs, is that mean we're not going to see the stuff that eats the bugs? Mm. How long does that take to really come come to come to town on that? Um, but yeah, we've definitely seen a, a drop off in the number of of individuals, and also the the, the variation of different species as well. So, yeah. I'd love to tell you it's a good news story, and we see lots of stuff, but no, it's not the case. That makes sense. Um, and then my second question was about the smuggling. Do you feel like smuggling is heavily? Uh, oh no, you're gonna put him in a tight spot here. Uh oh. I don't know. Is this a question I should not? No, definitely. All right. 
Is it? No, no, I mean, are, I really like, are people actually getting in trouble for it? That's really what I ask. Like, you know, it's not enough. It's, happening. No, not enough. it's people see other people getting a slap on the wrist, shall we say. Um, I think the first decent thing was the footballer, yeah? Yeah, we had, we had a, a footballer over here that got um, four years jail um, for smuggling animals out. Mind you, it was like his second or third offence, I think. And, mm. you know, they... They, the Department of Wildlife had to appeal the decision where he was getting a suspended sentence. You know, so and people wow. see that and go, "Well, the money's bigger than the trouble I could get in." You know, the the, the money that is in wildlife smuggling. I, I I saw a thing. I think I was uh, I was reading about it in either the the Lizard King or um, uh, one of those books. I, I, you know, there's a couple that have come out. And when you read the facts and figures on it, the, the, the money that's in the wildlife trade is is only just behind drugs and and, and uh, arms smuggling. So, but you don't have the you don't go to jail for twenty years for the smuggling of endangered species. You know. And I'm not going to lie, we have lists per state generally of what we're allowed to keep. Yeah. It sort of shits me that you guys are able to keep. Okay, so we have a demonstrator's licence, so it's slightly different for us. But a normal, say, recreational wildlife licence is for basic snakes only. Um, you then have to apply for a bird licence, rah, rah, rah. But in Queensland, you can't just keep a kookaburra. You know what I mean? You can't just keep mm -hmm. mammals or anything like yeah. that. Yet you guys are able to, and we can't, and they're, own, they're our own native animals. Some, yeah, sometimes it feels a bit rich when we, we see people keeping um, things like long-tail rock monitors now, glout oil. Um, they've got they've Don't got a lot wrong. of things that are incredibly hard to see in the system over here in captivity, or, or completely non-existent in captivity in Australia. Whereas you too, guys have got them, in, and they're relatively common in, in some collections. Yeah. It's crazy. So, you know, yeah, those are. The but that's us personally. That... That's not everybody. Yeah, and I mean, there's. I don't know. I want everyone to be able to keep everything, but some things <laughs> scare the shit out of me. And yeah, I just try not to comment on them because people get mad. People are like, don't infringe on my rights to keep a damn tiger in my backyard. But eh. is that what they sound like? People yeah. who want tigers? Yeah. Mm, interesting. All of them. 100%. <laughs> All those people. But, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say, you know, no, who's. You're going to upset someone anyway. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not anyone to tell anyone what to do. But so I do like, think it's unfair that, like, we have things that are from Australia and they can't even keep them and they're they, like they're there and we have them. Like, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. Yeah, that, oh, I mean, you know, the world, unfortunately, isn't a fair place, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got to build a bridge to get over it. I mean, this so. topic's, I guess, a hot one. You're going to upset someone somewhere with a comment either way so yeah yeah it's like i wish I wish, I wish we were able to at least get exports from australia i think that would be nice as far as uh it would probably help you guys out as far as your market since it seems like you guys have so many like uh so many things to get registered and stuff and licenses and stuff to go through um, it seems to be more difficult to keep <laughs> over there yeah. but, <laughs> Yeah, it can be painful. <laughs> I mean, my 
my... it's a dream, just in case Parks Parks is watching. <laughs> uh, look, you know, it, it depends. I mean, my to give you an idea, my my permit application was four hundred pages. Wait. So, can you imagine what it's like uh... to, to have to fill out a four hundred page document to keep a course note? Now, someone who just wanted to do it like recreational keeper, theirs would be that long, or is that just for your special license? No, theirs is pretty easy. It's because we're educating the public, okay. and so we've got a whole heap of things. So we need to uh, provide copies of our emergency management plans, our species management plans, uh, facility construction, uh, veterinary veterinary sort of systems, um, transportation. Etc. 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 It just gets really done. A but, recreational license. You just answer the question, tick the boxes, hand over the money, and then download your license number. Basically, well, in Queensland, anyway. And then I'm guessing if you want to breed, you know, the there's board. a different level too. If no, it's not so much that. It's if um if you want to keep venomous. So if you want to keep venomous, there's a few other hoops you need to jump through. But you know, that's that's not the end of the world, I suppose. I've, um. You know, keeping keeping a taipan or a brown snake is probably a little bit more um, you need to be a little bit more switch on keeping them than you do keeping a, a corn snake, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the 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 mechanics of keeping them themselves is pretty much the same. You know, they they eat they eat rodents, they shit out the other end. You keep the cage clean. But the main difference is you want to make sure that they can't get out and that you don't get bitten by. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the scariest thing this is, is that we have. <laughs> well, like we have colubrids who what, jump what, out what of tubs and stuff, and you know, we have colubrids that jump out when you open when you open up their enclosures. So it's like, yeah, I can imagine a lapids have a similar characteristics to them, and I would be very frightened. That's why I don't keep a lapids. It's character, it's character building. But to a lot of people, will believe, <laughs> oh. No. Old timer terms like apparently a lapids don't climb. The amount of times we've walked in there and they're hanging off the the top of the cage, but you know, oh no, I just grabbed that out of the tree. It's a brown snake, but no, it's not because they don't climb. So <laughs> you, you sort of fight that as well. So, uh, change yeah, of I, mean, I, I suppose. It, oh, sorry. Yes, go. go no, no, you go. No, you're right. No, no. Let's fight about it. I was gonna, I was gonna change subject. Uh, you go. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you change subject. <laughs> well, I was gonna say before we let you go, I wanted you to speak about herpeton. Yes. Okay. So, um, I'm co- I'm coming out to speak at herpeton. Um, I'm Ty's, coming for a holiday. Ty's coming as well <laughs> to catch rattlesnakes. Um, and and yeah, so that's that's something they're really keen on. So I'm speaking about. Um, blue tongue skinks and talking about um, 30 years of chasing blue tongues in the wild and, and basically talking about blue tongues in, in the wild and and uh, also in captivity. And then I'm also talking about monitors as well. And so the, the monitors that we've seen in the wild and, and how that influences the way that we keep our monitors these days after, after seeing a lot of these species in the wild. And so enclosure design and, and set up uh, and and how we set up our ex- external enclosures uh, in particular and and design of those and and how we 
how we improve on things because at the end of the day, where we make mistakes and, and all the rest of it, the, the best thing we can do is try and impart a bit of knowledge and, and explain where we've made some mistakes and how we can improve on that. So. Did you just hear he admitted that he made mistakes? <laughs> I'll have to do this. Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's that. So, um, so look, I, I really encourage anyone that gets the opportunity to get across the Herpeton and, and, and come and have a look at this, the talks and stuff like that. Um, besides my ugly mug speaking, there's a whole heap of other really knowledgeable people that are, that are talking at it um, and talking about all aspects of it. If you jump on Brian Cusco's uh, YouTube channel, He's been putting up some of the talks from the, the 2019 um, conference uh, where you have people like Nick Button and uh, uh, Alan Rapashi all talking about uh, various bits and pieces of the hobby. There's some, been some really good, interesting um, talks on positive herpetoculture and uh, Scott Sahl's been doing some talks on, on veterinary aspects and, and all sorts of stuff. There's some really good stuff there and you know, um, getting along and supporting the community is always a good thing. So, so, yeah, I'd like to see more of those sorts of things happening. And, and hey, look, we're, we're always happy to, to speak at, at, at overseas conferences as well. You know, that's, that's not Just a problem. Just pull yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Hey, man, that's, that's Shit, not a bad a gig. I'll come to a carpet on Facebook. <laughs> Everyone's we're trying to get happy. there, though. We're all trying to get to Australia. So we're not trying to... <laughs> yeah, so you do, do it the cheap way and bring the Australian to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, no, no, look, I think Herpeton's going to be great. I mean, the, the IHS Expo that's in June, I think it is, is going to be really good, too. Um there's a there's the Venom Week conference as well that's coming up as well. There's there's a heap of good stuff happening over there, that's for sure. So, yeah, it's nice to see all these stuff. things popping up that are both advancing herpetoculture as well as things like Venom Week as obviously a totally different story and you know, advancing yeah. everyone's so, knowledge on reptiles and the animals that we all love. Um, as for you guys, where could people find your book? Obviously, we need to buy it as well. Um, and where can they find you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, the best place to get that stuff is from the website, which is www.wildlifedemonstrations.com. Um, otherwise, you can hit us up on Facebook, Nature for You, um, or, or shoot either me or Ty, a friend request, or whatever. And we'll, we're happy to talk reptiles and all the rest of it. I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a whore when it comes to talking about reptiles. I'll talk to anyone and anyone about anything. That's fine. Was the was the gecko on your main page? I think at the Nature for You was that the one that you hiked yeah. for? No, no, no. That's um a beautiful velvet gecko. That's Oedurabella. Um, they're a beautiful gecko from beautiful gecko that haven't been called a beautiful gecko. Um, <laughs> they're a uh, a, a stunning species from uh, rock faces in the northwestern Queensland. They took me a fair bit of time to find initially, but once I found them, um, I've sort of got them figured out now. I know where to see them. <laughs> but but stunningly beautiful little geckos, that's for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Sorry to bring up another thing when we said we were going to end it, but I just wanted to sneak that <laughs> one in there too. No, that's right. That's fine. <laughs> As for us, portcitypythons.com, portcitypythons Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, portcitypet. 
uh, on YouTube awesome. if you want to check out our new channel. Um, we just filmed a video today. I don't know uh, when it will be out. Hopefully, hopefully in the next couple of days. So uh, thank you guys for joining us. Yes. Thank you, Scott and Ty, for coming on and being our first Australia guest. <laughs> and thank you. Happy days. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. And thank you for sitting in a hot car for an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> That's all right. The check's in the mail, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Your plane ticket's coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we will catch you next week.